This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Vacation alert from the three-row Jeep Grand Cherokee L. Mama and Papa want to go hiking. Los abuelos want to relax at the beach. And the kids want to go to the amusement park. With seating for up to seven, you and your loved ones can enjoy all these adventures and more. Jeep. There's only one. Visit jeep.com to learn more. Jeep is a registered trademark of FCA US LLC. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. With the UK's best-selling Science and Technology Monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello and welcome to the Science Focus podcast. I'm Sarah Rigby, online assistant at BBC Science Focus magazine. Today is International Women's Day, and in this episode, I'm talking to science historians Anna Reza and Leila McNeil, authors of Forces of Nature, The Women Who Changed Science. They tell me about the women who engaged in science throughout history, but don't always get remembered. The midwives, the astronomers, and the wives and sisters. When I've read about women in science history before, I often get the impression that it it was exclusively men doing science for centuries until there were, you know, a few sort of superstars that the people like Marie Curie or Rosalind Franklin who sort of started getting women into science. Uh, but having read, read your book, it sounds like that's not the case at all, is it? It certainly isn't. Um, and we can find women participating in science um, going all the way back to antiquity um, all around the world. And um, one of the problems with looking at figures like Marie Curie and Rosalind Franklin is that they were anomalous in the sense that when they were making their discoveries and doing what they were doing, um, it was still very rare for women to be in higher institutions of learning and scientific institutions in particular. And um, 
So when you're just trying to look for women in those spaces, those are the figures that pop up. Um, and they're easy to find records of because institutions keep records and things like that. Um, so one of the things that we were interested in doing with this book was kind of looking beyond those institutions where formal rep records are kept to see the different ways that women could have been participating in science on their own terms and in their own way outside of these spaces. Um, and so we find women doing this in all kinds of ways, going all the way back to antiquity. And uh, one of the most common ways that we see is women participating in medicine as healers and midwives in various forms. Um, and we find that in antiquity all the way through the Middle Ages, all the way up until the 19th century when medicine was professionalized and it was kind of taken out of the hands of women and out of the domestic sphere where women were practicing these things in their homes and their communities and taking it into that institutionalized setting where, again, that's where you'll start getting those unsung women in science, you know, the ones that broke into that institutional barrier. Um, but yeah, we were much more interested in looking outside of that. Right. Thank you, Leila. So was there ever a time or place when women didn't engage in science in some form that you know of? Um, I don't think so. Um, I think one of the things that we had to do for this book and that I think we need to do more broadly looking at the history of women in science is rethinking what counts as science. Um, and we use the term like um, pursuing knowledge of nature um, because, you know, institutionalized, like formalized science doesn't exist um, until like the early modern period in a way that people recognize and it becomes like um, a standardized practice and uh, there are methods that are shared across um, borders. And so before that, you're not really looking for science per se in those terms, but there are people pursuing knowledge about nature and women were doing that basically in every period that men were as well. It's just that... Um, Women, typically, especially in Western cultures, are um, you. Women have different expectations about what their social life should look like and about um, what kind of access they should have to the public sphere. And so, if we only think about science as something that happens in this like broadly public, collaborative way across, you know the community of letters or whatever, then you're not really going to find women doing that in a lot of spaces. But if you kind of zoom in a little and look inside the home and inside communities, women are pursuing this knowledge in these spaces instead, because this is sort of where they're at. So instead of looking for women where men are, we look for them where they are. And in those spaces, you do find, you know, particularly like Layla said, medicine, women practicing medicine to care for their own families and their communities, but also sometimes to um, make a profession out of it, selling, making and selling medicines, um, traveling around as a healer, things like that, particularly like um, midwifery uh, and the care of like pregnant women and babies is obviously going to be something that women 
are doing more often than men in a lot of spaces, at least in the ancient world, for sure. Um, so yeah, I what we found in researching this book is that basically everywhere we looked, we found women who were pursuing and creating knowledge about nature in various ways. Okay, thank you, Anna. So as, as you both just mentioned, uh, women were often midwives in antiquity. So why, it, maybe this is a very obvious question, but why specifically midwives as opposed to doctors? Why was there the gender divide between sort of what, what sort of medicine people practiced? It's a little bit complex just because um, doctor in the sense that we think of it now is in like a physician. It was not really a profession um, until the modern period, um, at least in the sense of it being like, you know, you have a, a special formalized education and you have all these sort of institutional bodies to which you can belong as a physician. Um, but the the divide, I guess, between midwifery and being a doctor in the ancient world is much fuzzier than that. Um, part of the issue is that when we kind of look back um, really far back, maybe like to ancient Egypt or to ancient Greece, we are always confronting the challenge of like putting our own categories from now back into the past, doctor, midwife, nurse, whatever. Um, and that those things are sort of useful for us to just kind of name something in a way that we kind of understand, but it can kind of recategorize things. Um, yeah. I think one way to think of it is that uh, women cared for women <laughs> and that's more of the divide rather than midwife versus um, physician in the way we understand physician or doctor. Um, and that women caring for women was something that was understood to happen and be expected to happen all the way through like the turn of the 20th century, but when, before medicine became professionalized and institutionalized. So I think maybe that's more of an appropriate way to think of the distinction rather than midwife versus doctor. Right, I see. So it's been said that um, witches were often just midwives or medicine women or, or women with some level of competence and knowledge. Would, would you say that was accurate? Um, so that was something very surprising for me in this research, um, that there actually isn't a whole lot of historical evidence to show that midwives were singled out as witches. Um, there's very little to no historical evidence to support that. Um, but what was interesting to find is that um, in antiquity, you didn't have the same um, associations with witches and witchcraft and women who had certain kinds of knowledge that you did coming into the Middle Ages. Um, in antiquity, it could be seen as like maybe something not that great to promote yourself as or to practice, um, but it didn't have that association yet with Satan or the devil. Um, you don't really get that until the Middle Ages um, when that connection between 
um, magic and witchcraft became associated with Satan. Um, but what that has to do with midwives specifically, can't really find a whole lot of historical evidence to support that connection. So were midwives respected in the same way that maybe physicians were? Yeah, I think particularly in um, ancient Rome, we have a lot of material from ancient Rome about the profession of midwifery. And um, one of the things that we have a ton of are like relief carvings of midwives at work, which are really cool. Um, They use sort of specialized tools. They had a particular kind of like birthing chair that they was in their possession that they would sort of take from job to job, uh, helping women to give birth. And um, even in the Hippocratic corpus, there are writings by men about midwives that place them in this context of like a professional medical uh, practice. So that like, um, for instance, like, Saranus writes about the the characteristics of like a, a good or ideal midwife. So there's some like sort of idea of like a standard for the profession. Um, obviously, like his ideals were like she should be literate and versed in medical theory, but also like she should keep her fingernails short <laughs> so she doesn't scratch the <laughs> mother or baby. So, you know, all particularly with like the Hippocratic corpus there's a lot of digging through what men are writing about women, um, about their bodies, but also about things like this, about their profession. But yes, midwives, particularly in ancient Rome, were respected and were thought of as professionals who did a specific job and had specific skills related to that. And we have lots of evidence of these midwives from that period. What other scientific fields were there in antiquity where you often found women? One of the problems with looking at participation of kind of anybody in antiquity is a lack of records in general for both women and men. And to the extent that records were kept, that they were largely written by men. Um, So (laughs) we have a bunch of layers to get through um, in order to kind of uncover what women and even men were exactly doing in the real, the big umbrella term of what we would call science. Um, but we do have evidence of like, say, um, mentioned in the book and that a lot of people know about Hypatia, who was involved in mathematics and um, natural philosophy, which is what the closest thing to what we understand as science in the ancient period. Um And we also have evidence that there were women who were at least skilled in identifying astronomical phenomena as far as like keeping track of eclipses um, and things like that. Um, But as far as what they were actually practicing that could mirror something that we call astronomy today, it's really hard to, it's really hard to find that evidence. But we do have evidence that women were doing these things in some capacity. So there were people like uh, Hildegard of Bingen, who, well, we wouldn't think of it as science now. Um, She, well, she was a religious figure, but, um, well, you you, you still mention her as, as someone who 
studied science in some sense. So could you could you talk a bit about about Hildegard of Bingen, please, and uh, what she studied and what she did? Hildegard is an incredibly interesting figure. Um, she claimed that her um, understanding of the cosmos, she laid out a her own cosmological system in Scivias that was written in three parts, and an illum- it was also illuminated, so it had the the really lovely images that we associate with medieval manuscripts. Um, And she claimed that she received her image of the cosmos through um, union with God, that these came to her through visions um, that she started having when she was a child. She didn't start recording or um, uh, directing her, her visions until she was much older. Um, but this was something that not only gave her the ability to write this wonderful manuscript, but it was also something that gave her cultural capital in the church. Um, it allowed her to rise through the ranks of the church, um, and to make demands of the Pope, um, and have those demands met, um, because her, she was seen as such a divine figure. Um, and her cosmological system, in a sense, differs from other cosmological systems of this time because she did conceive of it in a very specific feminine way. Um, the image of it looks like an egg on fire um, <laughs> of our universe, <laughs> of, a, of, a, of an egg on fire. Um, and it is a very... It looks very much like a vulva. (laughs) Um, And so there's been a lot of um, kind of feminist historical analysis of this that says, you know, this is a specifically feminine uh, envisioning of the cosmos. um, And that makes this different than other cosmological systems at the time. Um, And in addition to that, which um, we don't go a whole lot into in the book because that chapter was focused on like, the cosmos and astronomy. Um, but she also wrote, um, a medical text as well. Um, she was very much a polymath. Um, she also created music of her own, um, and composed. Um, so she was very much into understanding nature, understanding the cosmos, um, through her cosmological system, but also music and then understanding nature through her medical texts. Um, so she was an incredibly interesting figure, for sure. I thought it was really interesting in your book that you referred to her as a cosmologist, because as, as I've studied cosmology before, I would think of it as the whole field as having been invented very, very recently. But I suppose anyone who had a, a conception of what the universe as a whole is and what it was like, you could call a cosmologist. Yeah, I think our understanding of the cosmos has just gotten so much bigger that we just understand how much of a larger place the cosmos is now makes it seem like there's so much more to explore um, and think about. But even back then, even if their like physical understanding of the cosmos was a lot smaller, they were still thinking about like, where did it come from? How did it come to be? What does it look like? What is our place in it? Um, What else is out there? Um, where do the angels sit out there? Those are all cosmological questions, even if they're not the same cosmological questions that we've evolved with today. 
So astronomy in general seems to be an area where a lot of a lot of women in in the history of science have have done a lot of work, and it often seems to be women who were the wives or the sisters of prominent astronomers, which who and that's how they sort of got into the field and ended up doing their own work. Um, why is that? Uh, well, for um, I would say most of recorded history, that's the only way that women had into those fields. Um, so if we're talking about someone like Caroline Herschel, whose brother William uh, was an astronomer, um, he he needed a, a housekeeper and he also wanted to get Caroline out of a kind of bad situation in Germany. So he brought her to England to work in his house. Um, and he just sort of enlisted her to be his assistant, um, kind of without her, you know, permission really. Um, but part of the, part of the reason that this is Caroline's entry into astronomy is because in this period, um, people, it's not like you go to work at, you know, one big observatory with all your colleagues, um. William had his own observatory at their house in Bath. And um, all of that is very expensive to buy telescopes and to maintain them. Um, Obviously, the Herschels are like an upper middle class family, um, upper class family. They have plenty of family wealth and all that stuff. Um, But that's not something that the women in the family have like independent access to. So in order for her to have an observatory to work in, um, she worked in Williams Observatory. Um, and then also what we talked about sort of at the beginning about these institutional spaces where women are not allowed. Um, so your Royal Society, your Royal Astronomical Society, these bodies don't permit women um, until later. Um, Caroline was actually inducted as an honorary member, right, Layla? Mm-hmm. Uh, into the Royal Astronomical Society. Um, But it wasn't like she was allowed to, like, go there and participate in the same way that men were, you know. Um, She wasn't really allowed to go give a lecture or anything like that. So in order for women to participate or at least get close to these formalized, institutionalized spaces for science, usually you do it through a man who is connected to that. So oftentimes that's your husband, or in Caroline's case, it's your brother. Um, Another very famous historical, well, I don't know if they're very famous. Uh, (laughs) The Hevelius's were a husband and wife team of astronomers and kind of the similar situation. They had their really well-outfitted home observatory. Um, But that's the reason for that is just that women are not permitted in the formal spaces of science. And so in order to get anywhere near them, you have to go through a man, basically. And I think it's important to point out with like Hevelius um, that to you have to be kind of well off uh, class wise to enter into an Amer- into a marriage with a man who could afford to build an observatory on top of his house. So, <laughs> so even, you know, this is very much a gendered um, field. Um, it's also a very classed one as well, because you know you're not going to find a poor working class woman marrying into 
this type of marriage that has the money to outfit their home like that. So how common do you think it was that um, prominent men in science, particularly astronomers, had a sort of a female counterpart who helped them out and did their, uh, did their own contributions to the work? I think it's a lot more than we have record of. Um, the reason that we know about um, uh, Caroline and Catherine uh, or Elizabetha Hevelius, um, you know, her husband gave her credit uh, a little bit in the work. So we actually have a written record of that. Same thing with uh, Marianne Lavoisier, um, that they left their kind of footprint in history a little bit. Um, but, you know, they weren't really publishing on their own. So we're able to know about them because of what men said about them for mo the most part. Um, so that I think brings into question how many women were doing this work where their husbands didn't credit them, because that also wasn't very usual for men to do that. It was expected that women would be doing the help. Um, and that the men would be the ones publishing. And so whatever work women were doing behind the scenes often has been subsumed by their husband's work and they have become kind of invisible in the historical record. So we do have plenty of evidence that wives and sisters in a, were, were doing this work, but I do think that it was a lot more than we actually have record of just because it was expected. We've talked for the most part about uh, Europe, uh, European history. Um, is there any any notable period or time, uh, period or place outside of Europe um, where women had a particularly respected um, role in some sort of scientific field? So, you know, just with the caveat that none of us are, <laughs> neither of us are, are specialists in ancient China or China in general, but... Um, yeah, there are a lot. There are a lot of records of women um, participating in medical practice in ancient China, and um, like we've said with some of these other examples, a lot of what we know about this comes from um, things that men wrote about women. And so, again, you do have to kind of filter through these sources um, and kind of read between the lines. Um, but yeah, we have really, um, we have good records of medical practice in China. Um, like Layla said, women cared for women. Um, and so there is like in Chinese medicine, there is a, a particular branch of medicine that is dedicated to women. Um, and so there are women practitioners who um, take care of these complaints of women in particular, you know, complaints to with childbirth and sex and things like that, because it's not appropriate for male doctors um, to take care of that. So, you know, one of the, one of the fascinating things that I found in reading about this is that there, there are these kind of mythologized figures of um, grannies that are these 
um, women medical practitioners like herb sellers, and there are a few different types, but they've been kind of like in these writings by men about them, they're like cautionary writings about the kinds of like wily uh, women medical practitioners that you should avoid because they're like tricksters and they will do scams on you and sell you things that don't work. Um, but in reading more about this history, um, one of the things that historians are trying to do is read through these kind of caricatures and stereotypes and read these as there's still evidence of women medical practitioners. If men were worried enough about them to write them down, um, they existed. Uh, people knew about them. They went, they were, you know, figures in public life that you would encounter. Um, and so reading through the record that way is a really important way to kind of recapture this stuff. And so, you know, you take the, you take the, the stories about these medical grannies as, you know, with a grain of salt and you can kind of start to unfold this picture of like an economy of women medical practitioners who are going around making, making medicines. You know, there were stories about grannies who were called to the imperial court to take care of like the concubines. So there, this is kind of like the further back you go in time, the more of this kind of work you have to do to kind of unpick this history from, you know, mm -hmm. these myths and these stories and these kind of cultural practices. And this idea of women taking care of women is something that, um, even if it does seem kind of, you know, <laughs> sexist in the sense that women can only take care of women and that it's, it's less than for men to stoop <laughs> to the level of taking care of women. It was kind of that tradition that allowed women an entry into the modern institutionalized practice of becoming physicians. And so um, one of the things that Anna had mentioned was the Women's Medical College in Pennsylvania. Um, they accepted students from Japan, from India, from Native American communities, and um, they all went and studied, um, not all, but a lot of them went and studied um, women's medicine, gynecology, and obstetrics because there was a need for that in the communities that they were coming from in their own countries, um, because men weren't doing a great job taking care of women. And so you have these, um, quote unquote, lady physicians or lady doctors, as they called themselves during that time, stepping up to say, you're not going to take care of women. We will continue to take care of women and we're going to become, uh, professionals in that sense. Um, and we have this long tradition of women taking care of women. And that became like an actual argument to become licensed physicians. Um, so I think it's important to just underline that while that kind of seems like a way to subjugate women, it became a way for women to get their professional license in the 19th and 20th century to become actual professional physicians as well. Okay. Thank you, Leila. Um, so I'd just like to wrap up now by talking about um, your favourite lesser-known women in science history um, that you either wrote about in this book or that you discovered in your research of this book. Um, so mine, I think, is uh, Nicole Renlapote, who uh, she was an astronomer um, and she was sort of drafted in to help to calculate when Halley's Comet would return. Uh, 
which is a very difficult thing to do because it depended on a lot of very new mathematics and you had to work out how uh, the gravitational pull of both Jupiter and Saturn would affect it. And that's that's not an easy thing to do. That's that's still a difficult thing, would still be a difficult thing to do today. Um, so while Halley's, Edmund Halley's own calculations were out by about a year, Laporte managed to get it to within about two days. He was only about two days out, which is absolutely amazing. So I, I'm now a big fan of her. So uh, <laughs> Leila, who is your, your favourite woman in science history? Um, she was definitely one of my favorites, um, of that time period to write about. Um, I think, I think one of my favorites is Cecilia Nuttall. Um, she was an archeologist and anthropologist. Um, she was Mexican American and, um, she ended up, um, she was born in San Francisco and she traveled through Europe and, she took like one trip to Mexico and was like, nope, this is, <laughs> this is what I would, this is what I want to do. And this is what I want to learn about. And, um, she was, um, having roots in Mexico. Um, she felt it was very important to produce archeology span and anthropology, not just about Mexicans, but for Mexicans, which was a very different way that Americans and Europeans were studying ancient Mexico, um, where you had a bunch of salacious narratives about, you know, savages and human sacrifice and things like that. And while Nuttall recognized that those things did happen in certain parts of ancient Mexico, um, she does blame kind of the colonizers of Europe and, um, of kind of conflating those stories to justify the colonization of ancient Mexican peoples. And, um, so she, what she tries to do is kind of rehabilitate ancient Mexican traditions and rituals that, um, modern day Mexicans can continue to celebrate. Um, and she actually succeeds in a lot of ways. And, um, I just, I found that her, her story was a really important one, um, because it's not like she made, you know, she didn't like discover a pyramid or <laughs> excavate, you know, mummy sites or whatever, what she did was more of a cultural shift in the way that we look at the history of archaeology and the way that we look at Mexico uh, and the history of Mexico in particular. Okay, thank you, Leila. So Anna, who is your favorite lesser-known woman in science history? Okay, well, I'm going to give you the annoying answer, which is it's not one woman, um, but <laughs> uh, I think the the thing that's been really formative for me in thinking about this book is um, how we categorize different types of scientific labor and what kind of labor counts as scientific labor. And so I will say that my favorite women in science are all of the secretaries and clerical workers of the space program in the 1960s, which is what I study on my own time. But um, so most of the most of the clerical work uh, of the space program was done by women. And we don't know very much about these women. Um, it just in terms of like names and stuff, even though this happened in the mid 20th century. Um, but we do have like a lot of representations of the clerical workers at NASA that are very similar to what you would see at any kind of like mid-century sort of Mad Men-esque 
feel to the way that women in clerical positions are represented as like kind of like sometimes sex symbols and like a nice thing to have in the office to look at. And there's a lot of that stuff with NASA and sort of getting into looking at those images and thinking about the role of these women in the space program, you know, I found a really great source from um, a local newspaper close to Kennedy Space Center, which is in Florida, um, that (laughs) interviewed a bunch of women who worked at NASA, who had full-time jobs at NASA and asked them how they thought women could contribute to the space program. So... I work here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So one of the things that I think um, is really important to me in looking at this history and and what we sort of talked about at the very beginning about not looking where men are, but looking where women are, um, is to not only look for labor that we see as like inherently technical or inherently scientific. So we know much more about the women at NASA who were engineers or who had scientific backgrounds, but in what way are the women who are doing clerical work for the space program not doing, not participating in like the technical labor of the space program? And so that's one of those things that I I want us to think about more is how we can kind of switch our thinking around about that because it really changed the way that I saw that history. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Science Focus podcast. That was Anna Reza and Leila McNeil talking about the ordinary women in science history. Their book, Forces of Nature, is out on the 20th of April. If you liked this episode, head over to the History Extra podcast to hear a panel of experts discussing the biggest questions in women's history. Find it in the History Extra podcast feed, wherever you get your podcasts. The February issue of BBC Science Focus magazine is out now. In this issue, we explore how your brain creates reality, we look into the baffling science of dark boson stars, and, as always, our panel of experts answer your questions. Of course, there's much more inside and on sciencefocus.com. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.